Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the way words and narratives shape the industry. I'm Rich and I'm joined by my co-host Jennifer as always. And in this week's episode, we're talking to Dylan Tweeney, a former senior editor at Wired and a former editor-in-chief at VentureBeat. Today, Dylan is the editor-in-chief at tech PR agency Highwire, a role he started earlier this year. So we're going to talk to Dylan a little bit about crossing the divide between journalism and PR. And we'll also hopefully discuss how tech writing has changed since the days of print journalism and the impact of today's digital media ecosystem. So hi Dylan, thanks for joining us on the pod. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? Yeah, good, good. Thanks. I guess, you know, I've given you a bit of an introduction, but I feel like you're probably the best person to describe yourself and sort of give a bit of background to who you are. Sure. Yeah. I was a, a journalist covering tech for 20 plus years. And um, the hesitation about whether to call myself a journalist or a former journalist is that I'm not now a practicing journalist. But I was a journalist for so long that I feel very identified with that, with that career and that calling and that sort of way of thinking and that ethic has very much informed the way I write and edit. But so I want to be clear. <laughs> it's a, <laughs> yeah, but I'm not doing journalism now. So that's that's the difference. What is the difference to you? Because obviously what you write in your LinkedIn versus what you say in real life, because you need all of the titles in LinkedIn. What is the difference between a tech blogger and a tech journalist and a tech analyst? Oh, those are good questions. I mean, I feel to qualify as a working tech journalist, you need to have a degree of independence. You might be employed by a company. I think there, there are examples of that, but you need that degree of freedom to say whatever about whoever, or it doesn't really count as journalism. A blogger could also be a journalist, but it may not be. I mean, for me, a tech blogger is just somebody who writes a blog or contributes to a blog. And a tech analyst, I don't know, that's I, I don't know that that's as crisply definable. I mean, you, all you have to do is call yourself a tech analyst and you're an analyst, right? <laughs> Maybe the income one makes varies by titles. That's where Well, we yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll kind of dig a bit more into kind of all these different definitions and how they relate to one another. But um, to set the scene, could you sort of describe a bit your experience in tech journalism and sort of yeah your the journey through it over the last decade or so I guess or however long you've been in the industry yeah two plus decades now so I when I started the internet was not a factor yeah I started in tech magazines so it was very class tech magazines and, and a weekly newspaper which is what infoworld was at the time so it was very much sort of weekly or monthly cycle lots of reporting heavily driven on you know reporting and research actually Actually talking to analysts to try to get independent perspective in a very, I guess what we would now consider very stately pace. As we became more webified, the pace picked up. And I think what we've seen in the last 10 years in particular is that there's still a lot of great reporting going on, but a lot of journalists are under immense pressure to produce a really large quantity of stories. And in order to generate traffic, which is the lifeblood of 
uh, any publication. And so as that has happened, it's become, I think, harder and harder, with a few exceptions, harder and harder at most publications to spend a lot of time on reporting. So it's it's become a lot more writing and rewriting driven rather than, you know, classic reporting, in my opinion. Again, it's not to say reporting doesn't happen. It's just you you have to fight harder to make reporting part of your job as a journalist. Because it's not just we have to turn out more for SEO. We have to turn out more because we're usually freelancers where we get paid by projects. And I guess when you were working or back when I worked for a daily newspaper, I had a salary and a reasonable expectation based on fitting in the geographic space of the of length and of type and expectations. But now we have to make money by project. So it's hard to say no, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, you need you need a certain volume just to live, right? Well, I was going to say when, you know, at my last two journalism gigs were um, Wired and, and VentureBeat. I spent about four years at each of those, ending in 2015. But at each of those, you know, in Wired, I think we were at Wired t- 2007 to 2011. <clears throat> a lot of the work we were doing was figuring out how to do news journalism in the format of a blog. <clears throat> and then at VentureBeat, we had very much figured out how to do that. But just the volume of stories, you know, I was on staff, most of the people that I worked with were on staff, but even there, the volume that a blog journalist, an online journalist was expected to do at the time was, you know, three, four, sometimes six or more stories a day. And that's a lot. That is really a lot. Now, I think that from what I can tell, most publications have backed off from that. I don't think most pubs, at least the ones that we regard as serious, credible journalistic outlets for covering tech, I don't think they have that kind of expectation for coverage anymore. But I mean, let's be realistic. If you're doing five stories a day, four of those are going to be, you're going to get them done as quick as you can. They're going to be 300 words. You know, you, I'm not going to call them press release rewrites, but you're going to take something that was covered somewhere else or that was just announced. And you're going to do a minimal amount of like on the fly interpretation, drop the news, get it out there and go on. And you're going to take one or two stories and try to do a more journalistic job where you're going to be like picking up the phone and actually talking to somebody or maybe talking to multiple somebodies and trying to, you know, actually triangulate the story and do something more critical. I guess we've kind of gone from writing in terms of space because in print journalism, everything fits down to the the character in space to now writing for time and the attention span of the readers and of Google, which doesn't sound as nice as I always think, oh, I'd be so screwed now in the printed form because I write so long form. But yeah. if you put it that way, it doesn't our job doesn't sound remotely glamorous, does it? It gets to be a bit of a grind, doesn't it, Jennifer? I just don't go for the long pieces, but you have to really pick and choose where you're going to go. And that's the argument for freelancing, even though you can't really take time off because you don't get paid then, but then you can just pick and choose and do what you want. But I think that comes with privilege and time in the industry as well. And not everyone can do that either. Yeah. Well, I, I will. I want to. You, you've raised a couple of things in quick succession. I want to talk about one is the SEO thing. I actually think that Google's interests and the reader's interests are opposed right now. I really think that there's been a trend towards writing very long form, and one of those is SEO because you need an article that's 1,200 to 1,500 words to rank for SEO. But also, it looks impressive to other humans who are sharing on Twitter. Like if I share, here's a 1,500 word article on, you know, that's really insightful. Like it looks serious. I may not have read the whole thing, but it looks way more impressive than if I share a 200 word article. Now, the problem is as a reader, 
there might be 200 words of information in that 1500 word or 2000 word article. Right. I know you look shocked. <laughs> not in my articles. Thank you very much. Dylan, <laughs> of course not. But, um, but as a reader, I would actually prefer the 200 word article, like boil it down for me. I do not have a lot of time. And to be honest, when we look at, you know, actual readership patterns of these long form things that we're producing, people do not read to the bottom. People read the headline and the first couple paragraphs at best. They do not spend, most readers do not spend time going through unless they're coming to it with the mindset of like, oh, here's a magazine article that I'm really going to enjoy. And then, you know, who knows? For me, I, I probably put that in Instapaper and read it, you know, later on my iPad when, at night. And, you know, the, the publisher has no idea that I'm actually spending time with it. So that's one thing. I, th I just think that trend towards long form for the sake of SEO or for the sake of looking impressive is actually detrimental to good writing. I was going to say something else too. You said about freelancing, you know, I don't know if this is true of you, Jennifer, but, or you, Richard, but many of the freelancers I know have a mix of corporate and journalistic clients, right? So, and generally you want to do the corporate work in one area and then the journalistic work in another area, but you might do, you know, you might have tech clients that you write case studies and bylines for and get paid well for, and then you do journalistic work on women's health or democracy or social justice issues or travel something else that like is more passion driven for you and you get paid crap for that but you can do much better work I, I i don't know that that's talked about very much but based on what i know and the freelancers that i know it does seem to be a, a common pattern and what you described about the bragging and how long an article was i didn't realize people did that but it doesn't surprise me at all and it probably gets into why a medium like linkedin or medium itself will put how long an article is by scanning it or how everything with seo is about following the f design frame so make sure the important it used to be i forget what was it in journalism it's like a pure it's it's a reverse the pyramid. Inverted pyramid. And yeah. now it's an F. So you should make sure that people are reading headlines, they're reading the first paragraph, and they're scanning down the side. The that's, that's a structure I, I'm not familiar with. Yeah. The design structure <laughs> on web pages as well. Our brain, those in the world that reads from left to right, our brains scan that way. So we, we absorb much less information as we go down and right on the page. Hmm. So you want the most important information on the left side of your paragraphs? On the left side and the very top line and maybe <laughs> the second section. <laughs> I don't follow this though at all in my life. <laughs> I'm breaking all the rules. <laughs> I guess people share it and look smart because on LinkedIn, my articles are like 15 minute reads. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> you, you, yes, you, you, are a very smart looking writer, Jennifer, for the 15 minute read. There is something about that F structure that makes sense though, which is, you know, if you break things up with subheads and bullet lists, like you provide signposting that makes it easier to scan. And then an article can actually be used two different ways if it's structured like that. I could skim it and get through your 15 minute article in a minute and a half, or I could sit down and read it carefully and spend 15 minutes get it, you know, enjoying the experience. And I think that's actually a, a good way to structure an article so that it can be used more than one way. And now you're an editor, yes? Yes, I'm an editor for a PR firm, Highwire, and they've given me the title of editor-in-chief, which I think is a little funny because we don't have a publication that I'm the chief of. <laughs> but what it means is I'm essentially the in-house editorial strategist and overseer of content for all of our clients. 
And then how does that affect all of you, these opinions you've just espoused about length and style of writing? How does that affect go on to the clients or are the clients usually driving what type of content they want? So I think a lot of clients do not have, I mean, there are exceptions, but I think a lot of clients do not yet have a clear idea of how to use content in a really strategic way. And I'm saying content now because we're shifting from journalism to uh, PR. It's the same thing. It's writing, it's words, right? But we use the word content because it's more commercial, I guess. So they're looking for guidance and they're looking for ways of, you know, how do we, we know we need content? That's, that's a very common thing. We want, we want a thought leadership program. Well, what does that mean really? So part of my job is to press clients on that and actually press the members of our PR team, you know, on within Highwire and say, okay, so what does thought leadership mean for this client? What's really important? Does that mean becoming a, a YouTube, an important YouTube brand? Or does it mean writing big, important think pieces? Is the right place to do that the company's blog or an executive's LinkedIn? Or do we want to try to land these pieces in you know, publications as, as contributed articles? Maybe it means starting a podcast. And being not being like the self-important, like, you know, I'm I'm the thought leader here, but being the the intelligent interviewer, right? There are many different ways that you can show leadership um, and intelligence, which I think is, you know, thought leadership is an ugly term, but it essentially means leadership. It means somebody that you want to pay attention to. But there are many different ways to do that. So my job is to help the clients figure out based on their goals and what kind of assets they have, how, how best to deploy that and advise them on that. So to answer your question, yeah, sometimes we need to write long because of SEO. And we do use SEO tools to make sure that our headlines and keywords are, you know, doing the right thing. But I'm also, I also feel like the best SEO is getting readers who will like what you're putting out there enough to recommend it. So I'm always looking for ways to prioritize the reader. And so if that means, you know, that I would rather have a 200 word article, but SEO says it needs to be 2000, then I'm going to look for a way to do, I guess it's called the F structure. Jennifer, like to say, how do we get that 200 word article at the top of the 2000 word article so that somebody can read those 200 words and actually get some real benefit and feel smart rather than, you know, burying the recipe at the bottom of a lot of verbiage like they do on food sites. <laughs> anyway, we can't even go there. I've already been harassed too much in the last couple of weeks for complaining about that on RCP site. So I'm not going to touch that one. I'm going to let you can you ask the next question, Rich, so I can circumvent away from the haters. <laughs> so this, so you obviously underwent a kind of transition from journalism to comms, I suppose. Um, yeah. What what was that process like, and was it was it fairly straightforward, or were there any challenges? Were there things you sort of were surprised about? or they had to learn. So a lot of journalists have made this transition and I think some more happily than others. I've, I've been fortunate in that I think I, I'm, I know I'm actually very happy on this side, but I recognized one thing early on and another thing after doing it for a little while. The thing I recognized early on is that I was not any longer practicing journalism and I had to kind of give that up. This idea of, you know, maybe I'm being paid crap, but I'm doing this for a reason. This is a calling. I'm fulfilling an important function in society or, or something like that. So when you're doing content or you're on the comms side, there's not so much of a sense of calling. Like you can tap into it. You know, it is important to get the news out or this client does actually important work and the world needs to hear about it. And if it weren't for me, they wouldn't hear about it. But honestly, I, I, I think you're kind of going against the stream if you're trying to find a nobler purpose. 
which is not to say that it's not there. It's just, you got to, I think at a fundamental level, recognize you're in business now and you're serving a business purpose. So that was the first thing. And and I just, you know, I, I was an independent consultant for a couple of years before going in-house at a security startup. And uh, so being an independent consultant really forced me to think like a business person, like, okay, what can I deliver to a client that they will find valuable enough to pay for? And so I, I had to realign my way of thinking. That was the first step. And I was able to do that, perhaps partly because I had spent a lot of time at VentureBeat thinking about business, doing business journalism. So I was accustomed to think like that. The second realization came a little bit later, it was after six months or a year of, of doing it, is I realized that actually I was able to produce work that I was really proud of in comms. And that there were videos that I worked on, or there was a speech I created, or there was a, you know, there was a white paper that I did, or at, when I went to Valamail, the, the security startup, there were research reports that I produced in the series that I was really proud of. Like, I wanted to put these on my LinkedIn. I wanted to tweet them out. I wanted to show them to my family. And that I think is really important for me as a practicing content person. As long as I'm producing content that I'm proud of, I know I'm on the right track. Oh, yeah, I think that's fair enough. Um, and to kind of, I guess I kind of want to keep this journalism comms dichotomy as we keep talking. But the other thing I wanted to ask was what you think makes a good tech story. And maybe maybe that's different from journalism to comms, but I want to get your sense of how, how do you make a good tech story? What is a good tech story? But how do you kind of pull out something technical and turn it into something engaging and interesting to an audience, whoever that audience might be? Mm. So... When you say tech story, I think narrative, right? And not all journalism is narrative. So a good tech news story might not have any narrative. It might just be like, wow, you got a great scoop there. Or Elon Musk is doing something crazy today that nobody's heard about before, right? <laughs> that might be enough. And that's not really a story. It's news. I think narrative, when you're looking for a story, is common to both the comm side and the journalism side. You're looking for something that is relevant that show, you know, relevant to the reader, whoever, however that reader is defined, and that shows some growth or development, I think. You know, classically, when we talk about narratives, you have a character who you can relate to and gets into conflict and then struggles and eventually triumphs over the conflict. That's sort of a classic narrative arc. You don't really have that in tech stories per se, but I think you can find resonance with that. You can find the small startup succeeding you know, against Microsoft, Apple, and Google, or you can find the entrepreneur you know, winning out against tough odds, or even the product can sort of be a character. It can be like, wow, this product sucked in version one, but they did a major upgrade and like, it's great now. So I, I think looking for that kind of arc, you, know, you don't need to spell it out or draw it out in a really uh, heavy-handed way. But I think, you know, I think that's, that's partly it. And then, yeah. And then relevance, like, what does this mean for my life? How, how can I relate to it as a human being? And I think that's important even for B2B or enterprise tech stories. It's really important to find that relatable human element. So just to use a classic example, I guess, I was going to say salesforce.com, but maybe that's not the best example because everybody hates them now. But Salesforce, because they're just a big giant, you know, ego-driven company with this huge phallic tower in downtown San Francisco, which by the way, they're not even using very much because of the pandemic. But Salesforce is a good example because it's business-to-business -business software. It's like this cloud-based software that lets Salesforces organize themselves better. And honestly, it's not that sexy and salespeople don't even like using it very much. 
but it's incredibly powerful. And they were successful early on and continue to be really successful because of that leverage and those stories they're able to tell about how they supercharge sales teams so that salespeople can sell more stuff and feed their families. And everybody gets excited about that. Do you think like what, I mean, at what point did, did kind of things like that start to become sexy? And was that, were they, were they always sexy or was it, was it a kind of turning point in the narratives that were being told, do you think? Like, how did that happen? How did we let Salesforce become cool? Yeah, cool. <laughs> well, they, they've kind of gone through an arc and, I, you know, I'm really picking on Salesforce without really knowing a lot about them. But they went through an arc where they were like not cool at all. And then they were insanely cool because they led the, this wave of cloud-based software. And then they became cool because they were making a bunch of people a lot of money and they were a really successful IPO and they were really big. And now they're less cool because they're kind of one of the established old companies of, you know, the first wave of cloud-based stuff. But I don't know. So to, 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 the, to the broader point, like enterprise software, enterprise technology, I think has never been sexy in the way that consumer tech has, you know, the new iPhone or even something as goofy as like Google Glasses or, or consumer facing apps like Clubhouse are sexy just because lots of people are there and celebrity is involved. And it's very easy to understand. It's very relatable. Enterprise technology is harder to make relatable, but there is a small, like weird subset of people, which I include myself in, who find enterprise technology sexy because it does real stuff and you can really measure its effects. And companies are willing to pay real money for that. So I don't know, as a journalist, when I was a working journalist, I always thought enterprise tech was a really smart thing to focus on because most journalists would rather write about the new iPhone or the new consumer app. But if you're writing about something like what is Oracle trying to do to remain relevant in the cloud era or, you know, what are containers all about? Like you have a much more defensible professional niche because you're going to have less competition. <laughs> And if you can tap into what makes that exciting, like that's a really good place to be as a journalist. So that's what I've been doing, but also I don't want to write about Animal Crossing or Club Law. I am going to write about Clubhouse next week, but that's from the tech side. I think what you were talking about with narrative was very interesting because when you're talking from a B2C or B2B, but in the content side, the non-journalism side, you're always taught you're supposed to use you. The second you do, mm. you feel this to create inclusion. And I find increasingly, and it may be just after like 12 years, I do feel while never having done tech a part of the tech industry, but I find I use we a lot more when talking about the tech industry to create that narrative of inclusion. But I think that is more of a journalism, but obviously feature type journalism, not news type journalism of including, including in the narrative versus you can do this, which is very shiny tech. Yes. But something we can all be proud of is tech has played a very unique and important role in the last year. And we're all burnt out, but statistically tech was all burnt out before. So we can't really blame the pandemic that much at all or working from home. <laughs> it's like super cool. We went from like 62 to 68% burnout. But I think telling the story of what the cloud, what Kubernetes has done to allow tech to scale at this level is cool to write about that enabled how quickly we went to remote work and how quickly companies had to modernize in the matter of days and weeks. So it's kind of cool. It's kind of sexy what we're in. It probably will get lame again soon, but we're in a good moment, I think. Well, that's a really good point. And if you're the kind of person who's who's interested in how things work, 
which like under the hood, peeking under the hood and looking how the looking at how the engine works. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, cool, that car got me from point A to point B or it can accelerate from zero to 60 in two seconds. But if you like to talk about what's going on under the on under the hood, that Kubernetes story, like that's a really cool angle, actually, that like, oh, yeah, the fact that we were all able to move online so quickly and that Zoom just works. There's some serious plumbing under the hood and really complicated operational architecture that needs to be sorted out to make something like that work at scale for millions of people suddenly overnight. Like that's really, that is a cool story. Yeah, no, I I definitely agree. But to kind of go with a sort of longer view on that and to go back to what you were, uh, well, we talked a bit earlier about the the sort of shift in content and the sort of mechanics of journalism. But I wanted to also talk about the sort of long term shifts in the industry that you've seen. Um, So starting out in sort of especially like print journalism, tech magazines, like how has the industry, as you've sort of seen it and reported on it and written about it, evolved? Thinking especially about kind of companies like Facebook and Google becoming much more prominent, becoming not just tech companies, but these sort of like political and social players. Like how have you sort of seen that evolved and how has that translated to people's reception of it and what they're interested in and that sort of stuff? Wow, that's a big question. I I can probably respond to a piece of it which is, maybe this is too obvious, but I think that tech companies, especially the big ones, but honestly, it's there for the taking for even smaller ones. Tech companies are much more in control of their own narratives than they were 20 years ago. They're much less dependent on journalists to get their story out. And um, they can totally ignore journalism in many cases if, if they want to. And I think that's, uh, that has changed the attitude. It has changed the, the way we talk about tech, the attitude of the companies. It's changed the way we talk about tech. I think it's it certainly fits into the the kind of filter bubble conversation or the, you know, the polarization story in politics, like has its analog in technology where it can be very hard to access concrete, independently verified facts. And I think that makes conversation about what tech companies are doing, particularly with respect to policy much more difficult and much more challenging. It's it's really hard to have an informed public discourse about what Facebook does to encourage or discourage extremism, for example, if we don't have reliable information about what it's actually doing. Yeah, I, I guess there's almost, it kind of doubles the pressure on journalists in that not only are you sort of in this depleted industry without much money in there and, you know, focus on clicks and ad revenue, you've also got these kind of massive organizations that control the flow of information, but don't necessarily want you to understand how they work or want to control their own narratives. So it's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's kind of that friction between the companies behind the infrastructure of information and the people that should be sort of, that probably are, that are working to pull that apart and make that more visible. It's, there's a lot of friction there, I think, but it kind of makes the, those sorts of jobs and that sort of journalism really important. Yes, I agree. Yeah, I think it does. And tech companies and and obviously I work for them, they're among our clients, right? May not like that. There may be some discomfort to, you know, when they encounter journalism, journalists who are not just like asking them softball questions and using the quote in the press release, when they encounter journalists who are asking harder questions, there's a level of discomfort with that. But I think also, you know, we need to recognize that that's a really important function and that it's worth upholding and celebrating and society would not function well without that. Especially when we're talking about companies that are bigger and certainly wealthier than the majority of countries. Hmm, Yes. 
And yeah. it's true, but you could always, in a true democracy, access and interview previous U.S. president aside, different situation. But in general, there would be in-depth interviews with Democratic leaders. Yes. And sometimes they put their foot in their mouth, but you don't get that option in tech journalism, either you're talking to the PR person, if you're doing an in-depth story like I did on Google Union, anti-union actions, and the press person's super lovely and gives you pretty much a collection of press releases, but that's all they can give you. Or you have like a fluffy bullshit piece that goes to that is the I don't do because I just don't care to be on those conversations, but they're less accessible, but they're probably more powerful than most world leaders. So it's actually a serious problem right now when we're talking about the fangs. Yes. And I should clarify, none of those companies are among our clients. Um, <laughs> but or you could be NPR and still covered anyway, and say and constantly saying, "By the way, all of these companies are sponsored." Are, are are sponsors, but right. So I mean, that's actually a really smart point, though, because they do sponsor NPR, and NPR will ask the hard questions. Maybe they don't do tech really in depth, but they will. They're not holding back. They're not going to softball their coverage just because somebody is a sponsor. But it is also smart for the company to sponsor NPR. Because, you know, I think, again, they recognize the value of the journalism. They recognize the value of having their name appear or be spoken on NPR, even if it's, you know, semi-adjacent to a negative story. And I think that for all we might want to attribute nefarious motives to these companies, I think, like, I, I think they do recognize, too, that this is not a, I think there are a lot of people in these companies, in the fangs anyway, that recognize that it's not a healthy, sustainable situation if there is no journalism, if they allow journalism to, like, just go extinct because it, there's no financial model for it or they don't have any access to information or what have you. So so I think, you know, there, there, um, there's some value and I think they see that value in supporting journalism. Maybe that's why Jeff Bezos owns Washington Post. Maybe not. <laughs> we still have to see the still waiting for the other shoe to drop with that. <laughs> But I mean, we should say if, if Google want to sponsor us, then we're oh. more than happy to take their money. So <laughs> they, they can sponsor this podcast. <laughs> well, um, I, I wanted to kind of take a more practical look at kind of how you work as well. Uh, not that this is a LinkedIn learning course or anything, but um, I wanted to ask you sort of how you know, especially over a period of like 20 years or so, like how have you gone about staying up to date and sort of continually learning all these new sort of stories and aspects of the industry? Like how have you done that, I suppose? And have you always had the same approach? Have you like adapted and changed over the years? Mm. It has changed in the last few years. I mean, one of the things that I loved about being in a newsroom was just being constantly plugged into the fire hose of information. Your inbox was overflowing every morning with pitches. The, you know, the newsroom slack was full of chatter. In the physical newsroom, people were always talking and sharing information. You could hear what other stories were working on. So it was no effort at all to stay on top of things in, in a newsroom. Since leaving newsroom life, I've had to kind of rebuild some of that. And also I've had the luxury because I'm not covering news daily of stepping back a little bit. So I guess I rely for staying on top of things on, you know, a couple publications, newsletters, analysts, newsletters like Ben Thompson or Benedict mm -hmm. Evans. Um, there's some other people who's a Frederick Filou and Jean-Louis Gasset do a Monday note, which is useful. There's a handful of things like that that I subscribe to that are 
just kind of give me contextual information. Not that I read every issue, but you know, it's there. <laughs> I think tech meme is useful as a, as kind of checking the pulse of what's going on each day in news. And I chuckle a little bit about that because at VentureBeat, I used to yell at the staff for relying too much on tech meme, but there's a good reason for that, which is if you're a reporter and you're looking to see what's trending on tech meme, and then you write about that story, your story is by definition too late to be trending on tech meme. But if you're not doing that, if you're, you work in communications, tech meme is, a, or are just interested in tech, I think tech meme is actually a really indispensable way of seeing what's bubbling up to the top and what the significant stories of each day are. You know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter just seeing what people are talking about. I probably follow way too many people. So it's, um, I don't have a very complete picture anymore because I, unless I just spent all day on Twitter, I would, I miss too much stuff, but that gives me a good sense of what's trending. Do you miss that fast dynamic pace of a newsroom or do you like being able to take a bit more time and to sort of not have to consume and sort of follow every single thing that's going on is that kind of a nicer way of <clears throat> living I suppose yeah it is I mean I probably for the first year out of the newsroom I was really craving that and I had to reprogram my life and figure out how to motivate myself each morning instead of just responding to the like oh my god there's a big story we have to cover I did miss that constant flow of information. I'm actually finding, you know, I'm a month and a half into my job here at Highwire. And it's my first agency job that uh, working at a PR agency is a little bit like a newsroom and that it, it is actually pretty fast paced. Once again, there are Slack channels where people are sharing news and there's a lot of clients for me to work with. And so I go from one thing to another. So there's, there's some of that, some of that pace again, which I find enjoyable. Since you're onboarding with a lot of clients right now, when you talk to a new client for the first time, what's one question you ask them or something you want to learn about? Oh, good question. I think the most important thing for me is to start with anyway, what makes you different? That's maybe not the best question. And I need to think about that a little bit because everybody is like, oh, our unique differentiator is XYZ. And they just read off something from their deck. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to drill into that a little bit and maybe over time I'll find a better way of asking this question because what I want to find out is like, who do you really compete with and why are people actually choosing you over those other, oh, those other companies? That's sort of the first thing I need to know. And then I'm also going to be asking questions about what kind of unique data do you have? Because I think if you have unique data and you can build a story around it, that's incredibly powerful for both for creating news, but also for creating content that works in, uh, you know, both PR and, and marketing purposes. As we sort of come towards the end of the hour, I wanted to ask you a bit about creative writing, because I know that plays a big part in your life. I sort of wanted to ask you, yeah, how it has influenced you or if it's influenced your work and yeah, what you get out of it as a, as a writer, whether it's journalist or, you know, writer in comms, like how does it impact your, your work, I suppose? And maybe does it bias you toward brevity in writing? <laughs> Yes. So uh, I run a haiku site, tinywords.com, which is a, it's the world's smallest magazine. One haiku, or loosely speaking, tiny poem every weekday. It's actually not publishing right now while we're putting together the next issue, which will be, you know, a series of daily poems for, for about four months. So I started this 20 years ago because I was fascinated with haiku and the brevity and how much, uh, the brevity of the form and how much you could fit into a really tiny number of words. And I was also fascinated, the technology angle is that haiku are small enough that you could get them as text messages on your phone, which were limited to 160 characters at the time. 
So brevity and that sort of compression of language really does affect the way that I think as an editor too. I think poetry taught me how to write headlines because headlines have to be brief, but also there's a way of thinking about words in poetry. You're very attuned to nuance and multiple meanings. And that kind of polyvalence is really useful in headlines. So yeah, I think I think creative writing and haiku and poetry in general definitely has predisposed me to brevity. Also, the internet ruined my attention span, so I can't pay attention to longer stuff anyways. Now the truth has come out. <laughs> polyvalence, by the way, if you were wondering, listeners, before you go and Google, I'll do it for you. It means, vers- vers- I can't even say the word, versatility. Um, that Strangely, this might be the first time the definition on... I guess it's a French word traditionally because it gave me the definition in French, which hasn't happened to me before. So how would you describe polyvalence? Uh, Multiple meanings. (laughs) That makes more sense. Google failed me. Good job, Dylan. (laughs) But that we know, I mean, that word alone has multiple meanings. Uh, Valence is the charge of an atom in chemistry. So it feels like, you know, positive or negative. Probably the reason it came up in French is maybe it is a French word. And I'm sure that I picked it up during college when I was studying all these French post-structuralist philosophers. So yeah, there you go. Polyvalence, itself a polyvalent word. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think I can see how, especially when you're writing about technology and whether that's journalism or just like copywriting, maybe you're working on a landing page for a website or a rebrand. You, you do need to kind of, you need that brevity and you need to, but you need to be able to do it in a way that's sort of draws out the complexity, but also doesn't just show all that off, I suppose. And I think that's something that's quite hard to do. And often something that I don't think people who are technical first often appreciate that, you know, sometimes you have to choose how you're going to explain something or what to include and what not to include. So I think that kind of the art of brevity and of identifying what's important is is critical and a critical part of writing about technology. Nah. Yeah, you know, I, th- I think <laughs> <laughs> I think it was, uh, it was William Carlos Williams who said that a poem is a machine made of words. And that's actually an interesting point at which uh, people who write code and people who write words can, can uh, you know, I don't know, agree on, find yeah. common ground on. No, definitely. I think that's uh, probably a nice place to end it. Have you, have you got anything you would like to promote? Where can people find you online? All of that sort of stuff. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. And my company is Highwire PR, which is highwirepr.com. And uh, check out my uh, haiku magazine, tinywords.com. <laughs> yes, I love definitely. Tiny Desk concert, so I'm going to like Tiny Words. <laughs> tiny Desk for language. <laughs> yes, exactly. That sounds good. Um, okay, yeah, cool. Thanks for talking to us, Dylan. It's been really interesting and insightful. So thank well, you. Thank you. It's really been fun. I haven't had a conversation like this in um, <laughs> maybe ever. So uh, I really appreciate the chance to talk about all these all these different topics and it's been lovely talking with you both yeah we've we've had a few interesting conversations i think everyone sort of said they don't often get the opportunity to talk about stuff like this so so yeah so i think yes it's a really interesting area yeah our jobs are weird and hard to describe (laughs) which is what makes them so interesting so fun (laughs) right well it's been a pleasure good talking with you both thank you thank you very much dylan cheers
So all that's left is for me to thank you for listening to what we talk about when we talk about tech. We'll be back next week with another episode and another guest. Um, In the meantime, remember to follow us on Twitter. We are at underscore talkabouttech. And remember to check out our website where you can find earlier episodes and links to all your other podcast streaming platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, all of those. Um, The website is talkabouttechpodcast.com. Yeah, so thanks for joining us. Like I said, myself and Jennifer will be back next week. Thanks to Dylan for talking to us. Um, And until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.